1: And in this Naked Neuroscience series, I'm busy stripping down breaking hot neuroscience research. In the last episode, we uncovered how a revolution in technology is bringing an unprecedented flood of information about the brain. And with this, concerns over use, including students buying memory-boosting chemicals or smart drugs over the internet, hoping for this.
2: In a small 10% improvement in a memory score could lead to a higher A-level, grade or degree class.
1: And how a £100 helmet sending an electrical stimulus through your scalp to your brain has been claimed to help with, well, almost anything.
0: Mood, decision-making, morality, anxiety, depression, mathematical learning, language, memory, autism, ADHD... Parkinson's disease, pain. Now, either this is magic (laughs) or we're not putting tough enough filters on the messages that we're giving out.
1: Alongside brain scans to keep people in or out of jail. And the military latching into the mind for war games. So who's responsible for how these neuroscience findings are being employed? Is it the government, misrepresentation by the press, or...
0: I'll put it out there. For the first time in my experience, I think we're in an area where the hype is led by scientists.
1: In this episode, I'm reporting from the British Association of Psychopharmacology 2014 meeting in Cambridge. Does smoking dope Decrease your potential for pleasure. Now, the stereotypical stoner is often portrayed as an unmotivated, apathetic armchair philosopher. And new research reveals biological underpinnings for this, with chronic marijuana use rewiring the brain, making it less sensitive to the motivation and reward chemical, dopamine.
3: And when people smoke lots and lots of cannabis over time, the dopamine system can become used to being stimulated, and so it tries to adapt
1: And how the simple act of dieting can rewire the happy brain chemical, serotonin, making you more compulsive and increasing your susceptibility to developing an eating disorder.
2: And without meaning to, if you lower brain serotonin levels through dieting, that can lead to lower mood and more compulsive behaviour, so the dieting really gets a grip on you and it's very hard to stop.
1: And depression in teenagers. Estimates
4: vary, but probably around sort of five to six percent of adolescents have moderate to severe depression.
1: The shocking stats and what we can do to help lift their mood. <laughs> First up, the naked scientist Kate Lambour met Dr. Kristen Brennard from the New York Stem Cell Foundation. She's been punching into people's skin and using clever chemistry, she converts the skin cells that she picks up into brain cells, which she grows in a dish. All part of a quest to unravel the mysteries that surround the condition schizophrenia.
5: So schizophrenia is a really common and really debilitating disorder. It affects about 1% of people across the world in every culture and every country. And those who are affected, the common symptoms are hallucinations and delusions. There are, of course, many, many other symptoms, but that is the classic phenotype
6: what goes on in the
5: brains of people with schizophrenia? Do we know what causes these symptoms? So that is actually a really complicated question. Actually just this morning a paper came out in a really famous journal Nature showing that there are now 108 genes that have been implicated in schizophrenia. So we know at least 108 ways that somebody can be schizophrenic and the answer is probably even more than that it seems like the brains of patients on the whole are affected. In post studies we can see that the brains are smaller and in functional fMRI imaging studies of live patients we can see the brains don't connect as well. But the short answer is no, we don't know all the ways that things are going wrong in the brain of people with schizophrenia.
6: Why is it so important that we unpick this problem? Is it really important for treatment?
5: Well I think it's really important for treatment and for society as a whole. As I said, anytime one percent of the people that's there's 100 million people around the world are affected by a disease. You really want to understand why and treat it. This is a really debilitating disease. 95% of patients who are diagnosed with schizophrenia will never again have a full-time job. 50% will have drug and alcohol abuse problems. And in the U.S. at least, one in five will be homeless and live in the streets. And so this is a really important disease that has no cure. That It would be wonderful if we could get insights and new medications to help these people. So you've been using stem cells to help unpick this problem. How have you gone about looking at that? In 2006, a remarkable discovery was made by a researcher in Japan by the name of Shinya Yamanaka. And what he showed is that you could take skin samples from any person on the planet and reprogram those into stem cells. And stem cells, of course, can become any cell type in the body, or at least this type of stem cell can be. And so what I've done is I've taken skin samples from healthy controls and from patients with schizophrenia and turned them both into stem cells. And then those become brain cells, neurons, that I can compare. And so we start by asking really basic questions. How are the brain cells different between patients with schizophrenia and healthy controls? And we've begun to see a few differences. And the second question is, why are they different? And that's really the hard question, is why are these cells different and how can we make them the same?
6: When you take a stem cell and you turn it into a neuron, is that a good model for
5: neurons that are found in adult brains or are they slightly different? They're more than slightly different, unfortunately. Um, We have been doing gene expression comparisons of neurons from our stem cells. And what I can tell you is when we compare them to neurons in human tissue, they're most similar to first trimester fetal tissue. So our cells are really young. Nonetheless, they fire action potentials, they form synapses. So the cells that we make from stem cells are functionally similar to the neurons in the human brain. But there are some really important limitations. They're not myelinated like those in the brain might be and they are heterogeneous. So they're not all of one cell type and they're, as a consequence they wire in ways that they don't typically wire in the brain. And So it's a model, it's an imperfect model, but it's at least a source of live human neurons to study. So when you
6: look at the differences between the neurons that you've created from controls and the neurons that you've created from those with schizophrenia, what are the differences that you start to see?
5: There are a few major types of differences that I and other groups have seen it. Some of the commonalities that we see is that the neurons don't connect to each other as well. So they have fewer branches, fewer uh, neurites growing from the soma. They have fewer synapses along the dendrites. And functionally, some groups, unfortunately not mine, but other really great groups have shown that the synapses are not as functional. They don't fire as often between the neurons. Collectively, as a whole, I think the field has shown poor connectivity, reduced synaptic activity and structure, um, increased oxidative stress, and aberrant migration of schizophrenia neural cells.
6: So the cells from the people with schizophrenia are acting slightly differently, but there are these 108 gene that might play a role in that.
5: Do we have any idea what's causing that? It's likely that in every patient the cellular phenotypes might be coming from different mutations. In fact, I've genotyped my patients and they don't share the same mutations. So it seems like collectively pathways are being effective that have the same downstream consequences, but the genetic root is actually different in each patient.
6: So does noticing these changes, does that help us to develop drugs which might solve them?
5: So that's actually the ultimate goal, is to have a drug screening platform. I can make a limitless number of neurons from any patient with any genetic background. And so the hope would be that the geneticists can collectively sort patients into maybe 500 or 1,000 different ways of having schizophrenia, and that we could then do a a drug screen for each of the 1,000 different ways that one could be schizophrenic. And so that your doctor ultimately might say, oh, you're type 208. You should use this drug at this dose. And so that's, I think, the ultimate place that the stem cell researcher wants to get to is drug screening
6: so this is sort of going into the personalized medicine idea you'll know exactly what type you have of the hundreds and they'll know which drugs will be able to help you
5: it's a very similar approach to what people are doing for cancer right now yes the goal is to better predict what drug will help and to avoid the side effects from those that don't
1: thanks to kristen brenner speaking with kate lamble Continuing with our quest to uncover schizophrenia, this time by looking at the brains of chronic cannabis smokers. I caught up with Michael Bloomfield, psychiatrist and researcher at Imperial College London.
3: We know that people who smoke lots and lots of cannabis, and particularly during adolescence when they're teenagers, are more at risk of having mental health problems later on in life. Um, The one that we're particularly worried about is something called schizophrenia. This is a potentially devastating mental illness where people can, for example, hear frightening voices and can become quite paranoid, become quite scared. It's very important to understand how that increased in risk from smoking cannabis and schizophrenia is happening. So based on research using a brain scanning technique called positron emission tomography from our group in London, which is led by Dr Oliver Howes, we know that people who have schizophrenia have a tendency to make large amounts of the brain chemical dopamine. So we wanted to find out if people who smoke lots of cannabis also had the same imbalance, so also had lots of dopamine to see if that could potentially explain how smoking lots of cannabis um, increases the risk of schizophrenia.
1: I think it's estimated that something along the lines of 6% of the UK population aged between 16 and 24 will regularly smoke cannabis. What proportion of those will then go on to develop schizophrenia? What's the risk and what's the link between cannabis and schizophrenia?
3: There's some debate between scientists about how much it increases the risk. Most of the studies tend to agree that it it roughly doubles the chance of getting schizophrenia. I think the key thing that's really, really important is that the risk is most elevated, is highest for people who smoke cannabis very regularly, particularly during their teenage years. That's the time that it's, it's, it's most risky.
1: And going back now to the PET scanning that you did, looking at this dopamine chemical in the brain.
3: Dopamine is a really interesting chemical in the brain. It does lots and lots of things. One of the things that it does is send a signal within your brain when something exciting potentially is about to happen, something rewarding. And so it's involved in motivation. Now, we found within the cannabis users that there was a correlation, so a relationship between their motivation levels and their dopamine levels. And what we found was that the lower their dopamine levels were, the more unmotivated that they, they felt. So your brain lights up with
1: dopamine and reward when you're feeling things of pleasure and when you're getting keyed up to be motivated with something. And cannabis actually decreases the amount of dopamine that's in your brain, is that right?
3: What we think is happening is that if you smoke cannabis that it probably releases a bit of dopamine. And when people smoke lots and lots of cannabis over time, the same with recreational drugs that people can use, that the dopamine system can become used to being stimulated and so it tries to adapt, it tries to to respond to this by, by probably lowering the amount of dopamine that it makes.
1: And how much cannabis would you have to smoke? I mean, from your studies, you're only looking at 19 smokers of cannabis and comparing them against those that didn't smoke cannabis. So you're only looking at 19 people. But how much cannabis do you have to smoke in order to rewire and alter your dopamine
3: kind of reward um, pathways in the brain? In in our study, all of the cannabis users were quite heavy cannabis users, so most cannabis in the UK is sold as an eighth, which is an eighth of an ounce. That's roughly three and a half grams. The cannabis users in our study were smoking an eighth, would last them roughly half a week. So um, most of them were smoking a quarter of an ounce of cannabis a week, which which is quite a lot. I think the other really interesting thing is increasingly we're understanding a bit more about the different chemicals in cannabis, so there are, there are up to probably almost a hundred different chemicals in cannabis, and depending on the balance between these, um, that they probably have different effects on the brain. So there's one called THC, which is the main one, and another one called CBD. What we think is really important is it's the balance between these as to the effects that they have on the brain in the short term but also the long term. So bottom line then
1: in your studies at least regular cannabis use so at least a few times a week can actually decrease or desensitize your brain's reward pathways so that you might get feelings of apathy and lack of motivation and that's what we also see with people that smoke cannabis regularly you do stereotype them
3: as kind of being quite lacking in motivation. Certainly that's what we believe, based on the findings that we have. I think the story is beginning to fit together. Almost half of young people have tried cannabis at some point in their lives, and I think that it's smoking cannabis, lots of cannabis, over a prolonged period of time. Does, does seem to have this effect and there is some, some work that's been done in the past that's looked at educational outcomes and it's found that people who smoke lots and lots of cannabis and, and who importantly carry on smoking lots of cannabis um, can affect how they, how they do at school or at university or, or, or in, in, in their work life and this might tie into that quite well. I think the other thing as well is that there's some evidence that people who smoke lots of cannabis regularly are more likely to get depressed. This is a bit more controversial because it's very difficult to tease out if cannabis is making people depressed or if People who are depressed, for example, have low mood are more likely to smoke cannabis to try and feel better about it, but also we know that this, this chemical dopamine um, is, is probably in, involved in depression as well one of the one of the key symptoms of depression is not being able to enjoy things, and that 's if anything, the one that people find the most upsetting is they 're not able to enjoy things that they used to enjoy and I think it may it may time with that as well, but I think again we need to do, need to do more research into in, into how all these things affect dopamine. and how that affects how we feel.
1: So those people who have smoked cannabis regularly and might feel that they changed or altered their dopamine reward pathways in their brain, if they stopped smoking now, would the brain rebalance itself and retweak itself so that they could feel feelings of joy and
3: reward and motivation later on? Some of the studies that have been done have looked at people who used to smoke cannabis. And in those studies, they haven't, they've only found very, very small effects, if any, on the dopamine system. So what we think happens is that after a period of abstinence that the brain gets back to normal again. And so I think if people are worried about the amount of cannabis that they're smoking, if it's having negative effects on them, my advice would be to either stop or at least cut down the amount of cannabis that, um, that they're smoking. And if they need help with this, then it's about either seeing their general practitioner. And going back to patients with schizophrenia or psychosis. So patients with schizophrenia have
1: increased amounts of dopamine and cannabis seems to... Decrease in the amount of um, dopamine that your brain is sensitive to. So in that case, are people with schizophrenia or people that have a predisposition to schizophrenia in some way self-medicating with cannabis?
3: That's a really, really interesting question. I think that's certainly a possibility. And we need to do quite a bit more work to tease out um, these these really important points. In our study, all of the cannabis users, although they experienced a temporary increase in psychotic-like experiences, so these are strange experiences that all of us can have in everyday life, um, none of them actually had schizophrenia. So I think a really good study would be to look at people who did have schizophrenia and who also smoked cannabis.
1: Michael Bloomfield. Next, teenage behaviour can have its ups and its downs. And it's not really surprising, given all the brain changes that occur in the adolescent years. But at what point do the lows become clinical depression? With suicide the leading cause of teenage death after car accidents, how best to diagnose and treat depression in these years? And can the teenage brain ever fully recover in adulthood. Kate Lamble met up with Dr. Leslie Cousins from Cambridge University to find out.
4: Estimates vary, but probably around sort of five to six percent of adolescents have moderate to severe depression. And interestingly, the incidence increases as you go through adolescence, so something's happening in your teenage years which seems to make you susceptible to the risk of becoming depressed.
6: And so if a teenager says to someone that they've got depression, what normally happens? Is there talking therapies or is it there a drug response? What's the normal response? I think it depends and I think it depends how that young person
4: presents. I, th- I think there's very few teenagers that stand up and say, you know, mum, dad, I think I'm depressed. And um, for moderate to severe depression, the treatments are talking therapies and antidepressants.
6: So these antidepressant drugs, if we're giving them to someone, a teenager with their developing brain, sort of there's something going on in their brain, have we tested those drugs on teenagers or are they, are they tested on an adult audience?
4: I think that's a really good point to make. There's two periods in your life where you have this rate of brain development when you're a baby toddler and then in your teenage years. So your brain's changing markedly in this time. There's two answers to your question. One is you're asking if we've tested these medications on teenagers. And yes, we have in the sense that we know that they are a relatively effective treatment for depression. So for about 60-65% they help. We don't really know what antidepressants are doing generally to adult brains or adolescent brains. A decade ago there was some concern raised that um, antidepressants might be associated with increase in suicidal thoughts in depressed teens. And that led to a real drop in prescribing rates. Worryingly, what that then led to was an increase in suicide and suicidal attempts in young people. So although there is a possibility that there's a slight risk in treating young people, what we know is the biggest risk is not treating young people. Having a depressive episode in your teenage years is absolutely catastrophic. So your teenage years are when you lay down the foundations for the rest of your life. It's where you achieve it academically. It's where you learn how to develop and maintain relationships. So if you have 6 months depressive illness when you're 15 and doing your GCSEs, that has entirely different catastrophic consequences than if you have a depressive illness, say, maybe for six months when you're 30. So how in particular are you
6: looking at this problem?
4: Really, I was asking the question of do we prescribe as we're supposed to? As clinicians, we get guidelines on how to prescribe antidepressants. And these guidelines are laid down by NICE. And the NICE guidelines for child and adolescent depression state that you shouldn't give antidepressants until somebody's had their talking therapy, so until they've had a failed course of talking therapy. And then you should give antidepressants based on severity of depression. So the more symptoms you have, the more likely you you should be prescribing. And really my question was, is this what we're doing? The answer is, no, we're not. What we're doing is we're prescribing before people have talking therapy. And I think I probably agree with that, actually. Talking therapy is very difficult to access. What um, the results that I'm presenting show is that instead of presenting for severity of depression, for girls we present for risk. We present for risky behaviour, self-harm and suicidality. And the worry with that is that we don't have an evidence base for that kind of prescribing.
6: I've heard from acquaintances who've been on antidepressants, that they can make you feel in a very different way, they can make you feel sort of muggy or unable to access feelings. If we're prescribing those kind of drugs before talking therapies, could that affect the impact and the effectiveness of those talking therapies if they're having that sort of emotional reaction to them?
4: It's a good question. And it's probably fair to say that, yeah, antidepressants do affect how you think and how you act. But I think actually evidence suggests the opposite from what you're suggesting so actually if you're really depressed managing talking therapies is really difficult managing to discuss your feelings when you're depressed is hard so actually I think antidepressants can help people reach a level in their mood and their cognitive function that allow them to make the most of talking therapies.
6: So if you're concerned about this danger of the lack of evidence base when you're prescribing for girls based on risk factors, what's the danger there? What could we do? Are we prescribing too many or are we letting risky factors go by? I think the danger is that we
4: don't quite know what we're doing. So psychiatry's working towards being as scientific and robust as it can be. And like I said, we have good evidence that antidepressants work in moderate and severe depression. And these are the young people that it's going to have the most impact. The grip of people who are risky, self-harming, I understand that clinicians need to act and feel they need to act, but we don't necessarily know that these treatments are going to be so effective in these young people if we're prescribing based on that rationale.
6: So what's the next step with your research? Is it to get that evidence base for those girls with risky behaviour and whether those drugs are effective? All research just leads to more questions.
4: And the question for me is, what is it about girls that risk scares us, but not depressive symptoms? Why are we treating boys and girls differently? Because we shouldn't be. Is it perhaps that as clinicians we are used to seeing crying girls in our consulting rooms and we're possibly immune to that and it it takes... It takes a sort of elevated level of action for us to pick up our prescribing pads, whereas we're not so used to seeing crying boys and and that's enough for us to prescribe.
6: So you might be so used to girls in sessions when they're upset or showing depressive symptoms when they're crying that that doesn't act as an alert signal. But if a boy does that, that would act as an alert signal enough for you to get out a prescription pad and give them something, a treatment? Possibly. Who knows?
4: And I think what this highlights is the complexities that underlie prescribing and the agendas and preconceived ideas, consciously and subconsciously, that a clinician has that they take into the consulting room that affects the conversations that
1: they have and the decisions that they make. Leslie Cousins presenting her work, showing that if you're a teenager with depression, whether or not you're prescribed antidepressants seems to be based on which county you live in and your gender, rather than the severity of your symptoms, highlighting the requirement for more objective methods for diagnosing and helping to treat depression. Well, rather timely, in the news this week, the first blood test to help diagnose major depression in adults has been developed by Professor Eva Reddy and her team at Northwestern University. Published in Translational Psychiatry, the test also predicts who will benefit from cognitive behavioural talking therapy. The study did look at just 32 depressive patients, but if the results hold true in larger scale studies, there might be a blood test for depression as there is for high cholesterol, thyroid problems or HIV. An interview on the results will be published on The Naked Scientists forward slash specials. And closing the show, have you ever been on a diet? If so, notice feeling a bit ratty, anxious, low, and then start to fixate on food. It certainly happened to me. Georgia Mills spent some time with Philip Cohen, Professor of Psychopharmacology, who was awarded the British Association of Psychopharmacology Lifetime Achievement Award. He whetted his academic appetite by uncovering the dieting brain. And like Leslie, he's also worked extensively studying depression. He starts off by discussing his views and hopes for depression treatment in the future.
2: I think people talk more about having been depressed and that's always very helpful because I think you can feel very alone with it and to know that others have felt the same have suffered and have improved can be very heartening. At the same time I think there's been quite a lot of um, publicity about the negative effects of antidepressant treatment particularly medications and that's been hard for some patients. One hears various claims about them, such as antidepressants don't work or they might be addictive. I think more recently they do more harm than good. And when people hear that, it obviously can can be distressing if you've taken an antidepressant and, and it's helped you. I think we understand a lot more about the neural circuitry. We understand more about the brain basis of depression. I'd I'd have to say, though, that the treatments haven't changed all that much, and that's been rather a disappointment.
6: What would you hope to change now in the treatment of depression?
2: I would hope that an understanding of the brain basis and the neural basis of depression might lead to better treatments, actually perhaps more in the psychotherapeutic line than in the drug line, and the way that one might be able to train different parts of the brain to respond in a more appropriate or less distressing way to environmental input So in a way, it's like more traditional psychotherapies, but guided by modern neuroscience.
6: So would you advocate a step away from chemical treatments and drugs?
2: I think they'll always be useful for patients who don't respond to psychological methods. But I think there's a general tendency to say that psychological treatment should be first line where they're available. And uh, I would support that. At this meeting, there's been a lot of work on the role of inflammation in in depression. That's a very interesting idea, and it gives rise to some uh, potential new treatments which might help those patients who don't respond very well to what we have now. So I find that exciting.
6: So what is inflammation?
2: Well, it's a process which is um, part of, of many medical conditions. Um, but hasn't traditionally been linked with depression, which is seen pretty much as a psychological disorder or a brain disorder. But it's now clear that inflammation can affect the brain and it certainly can affect mood. And so this is a good line to work on if you're trying to come up with some new treatments.
6: And as well as depression, you've worked on um, eating disorders and the causes of these. Can you tell us a bit about that?
2: Well, my work there was carried out with my Colleagues Chris Fairburn and Guy Goodwin, and we were interested in the effects of dieting because eating disorders start as normal dieting, which gets out of control. And what we looked at was the effect of dieting on a brain neurotransmitter called serotonin. Serotonin's very involved in mood and appetite, and we made a connection between dieting and serotonin effects. That gave an explanation as to why in some people dieting can lead to, to eating disorders by acting as a kind of trigger through its effects on serotonin. Dieting is a, a statistically normal behaviour, even though it may not be particularly wise if people overdo it. And without meaning to, if you lower brain serotonin levels through dieting, that can lead to lower mood and uh, more compulsive behaviour. So the dieting really gets a grip on you and it's very hard to stop.
6: And for treatment of these, would you recommend psychotherapies?
2: I think they're the mainstay for all kinds of eating disorders and it really consists of going back to a normal diet and retraining yourself to eat in an appropriate manner. Often underlying eating disorders are rather negative views people have of themselves and they need to be worked on as well which again I think is best done psychologically. Over my career the big change has been this idea that the brain has some plasticity that it can change it can learn and that gives enormous um, encouragement for thinking of new psychological treatments to help people who spent long periods of their lives feeling pretty terrible
1: so we can all feel optimistic about our flexible brains. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for in this episode. Thanks to all those in the programme, Philip Cohen, Leslie Cousins, Michael Bloomfield and Kristen Brennard. This is a special Naked Neuroscience episode reporting from the British Association of Psychopharmacology 2014 meeting in Cambridge. See you next month to open our minds.